Hi, everyone, and welcome again to my Podbean podcast and, and YouTube, GaudiumAtSpest22.com channel. I am Dr. Larry Chapp, and I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Mahoney, Emeritus Professor from Assumption College in Massachusetts. Uh, and we are dis- this is part two of a discussion that started a few weeks ago, and we're discussing his book, The Idol of Our Age, which is really a great book. And uh, I mean, in a lot, a lot of ways, it introduced me to some authors, by the way, that I was not familiar with, one of which was Alan Bezanson. This guy here wrote The Falsification of the Good. I wish I could get this straight. If I wasn't such a Luddite, I could just pop this up on the screen. The Falsification of the Good, the French historian Alan Bezanson. And I really loved his stuff. Uh, after, After I read your book, I got his book. Uh, talking about Soloviev and Orwell uh, in particular. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm going, we're going to move on before we're going to be. So anyway, welcome. Welcome, Dan, to the show once again. Well, thank you very much. Very happy to be back. We got delayed a bit because we both came down with COVID, but we're back to, to discuss these uh, momentous uh, issues. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, everybody's fine. Everybody's on the mend and so on. Now, uh, we're, we're going to continue our discussion that we started uh, last last time on the idol, the idol of our of the of our age. What's it called? The idol of our age, not the age, our age. Before we do, uh, I did want to get just briefly touch upon your take since I'm asking, you know, I did a podcast or two the past week. I mean, the, the bombshell that's just hit the fan that the current head of the, of the, of the DDF Cardinal uh, Fernandez wrote a book in 1998 that was very, very graphic in its descriptions, uh, sexual descriptions in particular. Uh, and, you know, equating human sexual ecstasy you know, with our divine relationship. Of course, there is a precedent for the notion of our mystical ascent to God as a kind of eros, right? You see this in the Song of Songs, marital metaphors, love, lover, lovers as metaphors, and so on. But this uh, has taken it to a real extreme, and, and, and some people view it, well, this is nothing more than John Paul's theology of the body, and I take great offense at that because I don't think that's true. Uh, I was, I did speak say something on Twitter now X, you know, the fact that it did remind me of the early Christopher West's sort of take on the theology, which was very graphic and very almost borderline pornographic. Um, And I took some heat from that because people were saying, oh, don't compare this with the theology of the body. Well, I'm not. I'm comparing it with to a distortion of the theology of the body. But anyway, that's sort of my it's really it was really shocking. I don't know if you've read any of it. I've read big chunks of it, but but go ahead. What what are your thoughts? I I spent uh, an hour or so last night reading big chunks of it and reading various reports from the Catholic News Agency. I think we've got to stop being papalatrists and we've got to stop being defensive. Uh, this, I, from what I can tell, the 1998 book is a mixture of borderline, or maybe out and out pornography with something approaching blasphemy. The uh, account of Eros you mentioned, Larry, uh, never reduced the ascent of the soul, what Plato calls in the symposium, the ladder of love, right. to, to orgasm or to uh, sexuality, yeah. it showed that implicit in sexual eros is a higher eros, an ascent of the soul 
to the true, the good, and the beautiful. So, you know, it's just the same way Freud takes the sort of component parts of the soul one finds in Plato and reduces them to the lower common denominator. Um, in this way, uh, you know, per, you know, Fernandez says he wouldn't have written this today and that he was trying to reach young people. But uh, Cardinal Sarah said uh, yesterday, uh, you know, maybe we, we reach broken souls, maybe we reach the lost among the young by giving them a true account of the human person and the order. Yeah. I mean, how's that for a start? The liberating truth of the gospel and the moral law. I think Fernandez ought to resign. I don't think there's any way he can be an authentic guardian of Catholic doctrine when he's putting for to 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 give an account of a 16-year-old's uh, account of an erotic encounter with Jesus, uh, witness and I guess approved by the Virgin by the, Mary by the Blessed Mother. Yeah, by the Blessed Mother. This is pornography uh, uh, imbued with blasphemy. I don't think there's any way around it. And uh, I th and I think going back to this, this you know, look when the when the when the DDF issues a statement in 2021. With good, with good reasoning, and 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 really in full line with the magi the magisterium of the church over a very long period of time, telling us why we can't bless certain acts and relationships, and then uh, and over the signature of the Holy Father, and for that same for that all that reasoning to be chucked out within two years, uh, and and uh, you know with very fatuous arguments. Um, and it's apparent that this teaching is probably a provisional teaching. In other words, if you can eliminate a fulsome and theologically and morally serious understanding of what blessing is and what the objective moral content or immoral content of certain acts are, and just disregard all those arguments two years later, why aren't they going to disregard this halfway house, which still yeah, tries yeah. to make some kind of distinction between um I look I, I think it really comes down to a theme I stress in the idol of our age um when we sever mercy from justice and particularly from repentance the great call for metanoia for the turning of the soul to the light of truth I uh, I, I think I may have mentioned in our our last discussion it's quite striking when you open the Gospel of Mark right from the get-go and right to the end of that very small gossip, gospel, Jesus is calling us to repentance. There is never the slightest qualification in Jesus about the nature of sin. If anything, Jesus' Jesus's entire teaching and witness demands a higher degree of holiness and interiority than that demanded, let's say, by the Mosaic law, and this this sort of identification of mercy with relativism, or uh, yeah, and also I would say with a kind of historicism, this idea that somehow sin changes from epic to epic, or that people can be in situations where they got themselves into rough spots. Here they are. We have to meet them. Yeah. Where you know. This is very, very far from the gospel of Christ. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not somebody who plays the heresy cards. Uh, 
I, I maybe, you know, as I think I said last time, I'm not sure that's the best framework you know, to discuss this, but I, I would say that there's a, a severe misemphasis, mercy, divorced from the larger framework that gives efficacy to divine mercy. Yeah, I had an article come out just yesterday on Catholic World Report which was a critique of what I call moral theologies from below. And it kind of makes this exact same point you're making, that traditionally the church's moral theology starts from above with the call to sanctity, with repent and believe the good news, obviously with a heavy dose of mercy, compassion, forgiveness, and so on. But the but mercy and so forth are, are, are moments within this greater, greater call to holiness. And, and, I may, and I quote C.S. Lewis, and here's Lewis's from his book, The Problem of Pain. Uh, which is uh, th- he's talking about when we reduce goodness to kindness. He says it is for people whom we care nothing about that we demand happiness on any terms with our friends, our lovers, our children, we are exacting and would rather see them suffer much than be happy in contemptible and enraging in, in estranging modes. If God is love, he is by definition something more than kindness, mere kindness. And it appears from all the records that though he has often rebuked us and condemned us, he has never regarded us with contempt. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. And what I like about that is that it does point out quite clearly that an endless sort of avuncular kindness, Jesus, the, uh, Lewis goes on to point out, we don't so much want a heavenly father as a sort of senile benevolence in the sky, you know, that pats us on the head and gives us a quarter for ice cream, even when we do badly, you know, and, and this is the sort of image of Christ that people like Austin Ivory and Massimo Fagioli and the other papal uh, defenders are always putting out that all this Pope is doing is extending the same kind of mercy that Christ extended to people, hogwash, that is not the kind of mercy that Christ extended to people. Repent and believe that. I mean, look at all the, and I, I'm on a rant, but I'm going to get back to you. I mean, look at all the parables that Jesus tells in the New Testament that are all about being vigilant because you know not the hour. The unwise virgins, for example, you know, his message throughout is on the seriousness of our lives and on the importance of, of turning away from sin because the hour is near and so on. Uh, the time is short. And instead, everything is now turned on its head into this endless sort of mercy, mercy, mercy in this open-ended way. Yeah, I've noticed that Cardinal Casper, who is one of the architects of this new orientation, has uh, publicly, I don't know how recently, but I've certainly read one or two places where he has criticized this unilateral emphasis on mercy, divorce from the larger framework of of Christian truth and witness. And when Cardinal Casper thinks this papacy has gone awry, that says something, I think, very interesting. Yeah, and he's been been critical of the German synodal way, and he's been critical of certain aspects of this papacy. Despite that, like you said, at the very beginning of this papacy, at the, you know, the early synod on the family, it was his book on mercy that foregrounded the notion that maybe some divorce and remarried can receive communion. And he was very critical of those who said, you know, that you, you can't do that. Uh, but I, I have a very cynical interpretation of, of that, of that move by Casper, which is it's, it's sort of 
an open secret that Walter Casper and Joseph Ratzinger did not get along with one another. Uh, I think that's that, right. There was a theological, long-standing theological debate in the realm of ecclesiology between those two that I won't go into here. And Ratzinger, of course, sort of wins the debate and becomes Pope. In some ways, I think Casper sidled up to Pope Francis at the very beginning of his pontificate because this was his revenge against Ratzinger in some ways, uh, that his moment had... By the way, uh, you know, serious theological and philosophical differences do get tied up. Uh, uh, tied in with amor probe, with ego, with uh, yeah. personal yeah. considerations, since we're we're all imperfect. But Casper is actually a really good theologian. I, yeah. I, I my goodness, well, I, good. I must say I have newfound respect for him because yeah. he's um, he. I think he cares about the integrity of the church, and I think this is a sign. I think he. I think he went too far in his sort of liberation of mercy or the pastoral prioritization yeah. of mercy was always going to have these effects. But when he sees some of his own ideas being carried out in an extreme and relativistic way, he's bothered by it. And I think that suggests some personal and theological integrity. But let me say this mercy, mercy, mercy you talked about. And, uh, uh, it really is a reflection of what I call the religion of humanity. Okay, good. Let's segue uh, into that. We are no longer dealing with caritas. Caritas has, as you suggested, an element of tough love. If you care about your children, uh, the, God the Father may be Abba to us. He is our friend and father. But as our friend and father, he wishes us to be uh, virtuous and holy people. And uh, the cardinal and theological virtues um, are absolutely essential to the happiness and salvation of human beings. So the idea, you know, so many in the church today have succumbed, uh, you know, Jacques Maritain's famous, famous phrase from the Paison de la Garonne about kneeling before the world. We yeah. kneel the world and we transform the very nature of love and mercy when we sever them from high demands on what it means to be a human being, what it means to be uh, virtuous, to strive for holiness, and to be open to the grace of God. And I think a lot of contemporary Christian theology, and more than theology, Christian political and social thought, Catholic political and social thought, has been infected by a mixture of humanitarianism uh, and what I would call, um, uh, you know, this this kind of uh, immunization of the horizon of human striving. You know that uh, we yeah. don't ask very much of human beings, and we think we're being loving when we put self-will or autonomy first, or we simply meet people where they are and make them happy. Um, so, um, uh, you know, come back to the, to the, the question of heresy for a long time, I've argued, um, resorting to the old heresies to describe these missteps and distortions and misrepresentations yeah. of Christian truth. It's not useless. In my book, I talk about the danger of Marcionism, for example, severing a kind of Christian purity that ignores the 
tough-mindedness of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. And then you'll end up with something like Tolstoy, you know, Christ without the church or Christ without, um, you know, you know, a, a sufficient attentiveness to the, the difficult demands of living in the world. But I do think that the bigger problem confronting the church is the fact that many well and ill-intentioned persons simply no longer know how to differentiate charity from secular compassion, uh, the, the high demands of Christian love from simply the undemanding call to be nice, non-judgmental. These are two radically different things. And I think what's so disturbing for so many of us today is that eminent, well, some of these people we, we've named are not so <laughs> intrinsically evident in terms of the quality of their thought. Uh, I would include Fernandez and I would include Fajoli and uh, Ivories and these people. But they're certainly influential and they're shaping the, the tone of this papacy and the interpretation of this papacy. And in many ways, they're leaving the magisterium behind. And, you know, it's pathetic when you have Fernandez after the worldwide uprising against uh, his declaration, his tortured declaration on the, the blessings, blessing of people in irregular relationships, that he responds and says, by fiat, that this is the permanent magisterium of the church. It doesn't work that way. Um, if, if that's the case... Um, then, then uh, the, 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 the magisterium is whatever any pope says at any moment. Yeah. And I would say a pope, a pope has a real responsibility to limit his self-will and private judgment and to channel uh, the inheritance of the faith, you know, to, to, cha to channel the moral law, to be faithful uh, not to think that somehow a new circumstance or pastoral considerations or a new historical epoch somehow, or I think worst of all this, and I would say this is heresy, this Joachimism where the Holy Spirit now baptizes things that Christians understood to be illicit and, uh, yeah. uh, you know, from the, from the, for the first, from, from the time of Christ and the apostles. So, what we're dealing with here is, I think, the beginning of a kind of new religion. And if if they, if I can put it that way, win, if they succeed through authoritarianism, and that's become a real weapon, I think, of, you know, you know, no discipline for a German church that is openly at war with the uh, teachings of the Catholic Church, but perhaps imprudently orthodox bishops and theologians get canned uh, you know, that's that sends a message to everyone. It sends a message to bishops not to carry out their own responsibility to be witnesses to the truth of the gospel and the moral law. And it also sends a message to others that, in effect, um, where uh, this is a new religion and the criteria of the old gospel does not apply in this new humanitarian uh, Catholicism. That's why I think Cardinal Mueller has said quite bluntly, but justly, that we're in danger of a hostile takeover of the church. And um, I don't know what Pope Francis is thinking. 
I mean, we certainly owe respect to his office and to his person to the extent that he embodies the, the Petrine responsibilities. But I think when he begins to sow such confusion that the clear understanding of the faith is muddled for the vast majority of Catholics, then I think people have an obligation to speak up. I saw Cardinal Sarah issued a very good statement yesterday, and he began yeah. by expressing respect for the Pope, but also saying that he as a you know had a had a responsibility to bring theological and moral clarity to the situation. And uh, I think tone matters. And I've noticed in some of your columns and, and essays at CWR that you've been critical of those who give way to, uh, uh, to uh, you know, a tone that's perhaps too respectful of the office of the Holy Father. And I, I share that concern. But on the other hand, as I said in my opening remarks, I'm very, I'm not willing uh, to... Uh, sort of torture myself every time some kind of horribly ill-advised and scandalous yeah. teaching is presented and try to twist it into fidelity with <laughs> adoring Christian. Well, that's the, that's the trouble. At a certain yeah. time, we just have to say something's gone badly wrong. And I think my framework of, um, you know, there were, you know, a, a two century project, uh, of replacing uh, the Christian gospel with a secularized religion of humanity. Now, the architects of that project, people like August Comte and others, saw it as a self-conscious project to secularize Christianity. So Comtean altruism had nothing to do with uh, Caritas, but it has a bit of a Christian feel and resonance but I think what's happened now is that the Catholic Church, which was the uh, the body, uh, the 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 the, the uh, institution of the modern world that was most self-consciously and firmly opposed to the modern project, you know, of of of, of eliminating transcendence and secularizing human self-understanding. Large elements of the church have succumbed to. Um, the religion of humanity, whether they know it or not. I think some of them know it. I think the liberationists know it. But I think, I'm not sure Pope Francis knows it. But for, for better or worse, his pastoralized conception of Catholicism is marked more and more by this latitudinarian uh, interpretation of Christian. Where is the so pointing the sword inward? Where are the where yeah. is the war with sin? Where is the clarity about good and evil that is so central to the Christian proposition? Yeah, I, uh, in my last article in CWR, I, I used that very word, you know, latitudinarian. Uh, that seems to be the overall ethos of this papacy, is this runaway latitudinarianism. Uh, I also made mention of Charles Taylor's book, Secular Age, which I have some disagreements with, of course, but I think that he's largely accurate when he describes our age as an age that lives, and it kind of goes with your description of the religion of humanity, wherein everything has to take place within the boundaries of, of what Taylor calls the imminent frame, the here and now, the non-transcendent, the non-supernatural, in a very horizontalist landscape. And insofar as that is the case, then modern human beings are defined is in, in what he describes we are we are all what he calls buffered selves we're buffered against supernatural agency and and 
dead set against it in many ways, whereas more ancient human beings were porous. They viewed themselves as porous selves uh, who lived in a vertical universe of hierarchical agents, uh, some of which were supernatural. So the point I make is, you know, when we live in this imminent frame of buffered selves, uh, utterly latitudinarian and horizontalist, the last thing in the world the church needs to do is to double down on that horizontalism, uh, you know, and, and, and what it needs to be doing instead is attempting to puncture that imminent frame to to reemphasize the supernatural vertical elements. You mentioned in your book, I, I was trying to find it earlier. Sorry if I was a bit distracted. Uh, um, I, I lost my little placeholder I had in there. It was a quote that you had in there about how, you know, once once churchmen sort of lose their faith in the supernatural, that's when the gig is up. That's that's when you know that you're in the religion of humanity and a church that's now simply constructing idols of, of that kind. When the when the concerns become merely horizontal or political in the narrow sense, and especially when politics becomes identified not with the civic and spiritual common good, but with revolutionary emancipation. By the way, I think um, I think John Paul II and Ratzinger were quite good at making distinctions in their critique of liberation theology. They were. They, uh, they saw something valuable in a special concern, the preferential option for the poor, but they also saw to confuse, to forget the ultimate, you might say, theological significance of the poor. The people who are at the lower end of the economic spectrum are not necessarily graced. You know, there has to be an open, there has to be a humility and an openness to divine mercy and grace. And, uh, and uh, you know, of course, the, the church teaches uh, that uh, the, the truth of the fall, that we're all imperfect. Yeah. We're all capable of becoming power hungry, egoistic, rapacious. So, in in any case, um, yeah, when the when the the the, the concerns become merely imitinistic and horizontal, when uh, I'd say, look, uh, during the sex abuse crises, when I would when I saw all the cover ups and 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 the uh, the bishops who simply acted like time serving bureaucrats rather than ministers of the gospel. I had to ask myself, and many of these are very old men, and I had to ask myself, do they fear the Lord? Do they fear the judgment of God? And the answer has to be in some way, no. They act as if the only concerns are uh, their personal reputation or news coverage or this kind of thing. We're very, very far from the the apostolic spirit you know think of <laughs> you think of some of the early martyrs uh was it uh, saint was it saint ignatius you know going from uh, uh antioch to rome and meeting yeah. with churches in the way and writing his epistles and uh, there's such an admirable courage and spiritual martyrdom and, and absolute confidence yeah in the faith that has been passed on to us you can contrast this with these these people who either genuflect before highly questionable, even in human ideologies, or just seem to uh, play a role in a bureaucracy that it's lost its purpose and soul. So, uh, but yes, the humanitarianism is a real category, and it's um, it it. Um, I'll give you an example. 
I, I when I speak at, as you do, I'm sure at to, to Catholic groups or Catholic colleges, uh, there's always a tendency to turn St. Mother uh, Teresa of Calcutta into a social worker. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Uh, when she died uh, a few days, by the way, after Princess Diana, that terrible accident in Paris. I thought it was the same day. I thought they died the oh, same day. Oh, maybe it was within a day. You could be right. But the news, the news person on uh, Channel Four in Boston says we've lost another leading humanitarian. You know, but you know, Mother Teresa famously told Malcolm Mundridge in the interview that made her famous. Really, the book "Something Beautiful for God." She says, "I'm not a social worker. I'm not doing, and I'm not doing this to solve so the social problems in India." I'm I'm trying to do something beautiful for God, you know, and that perspective, um, the subordination of, you might say, the activist project of transforming the world to, um, and by the way, making doing our best to fight injustice, yeah. you know, that that's all important, but when it's tied to you know, a kind of political messianism or an unreasonable understanding of what human beings can achieve without the grace and goodness of God. We've left Christianity behind. And what pains me is, you know, I'll give you another example. I'm very happy that Pope finally speaking up about the disastrous and collapse of the Catholic Church in Nicaragua. Um, and yeah. by the way, there's a, there's a lesson here for some of those Jesuits who uncritically identified themselves with the uh, and the Marinoler foreign minister in the 80s who uncritically identified themselves with the Sandinista revolution. Ortega, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. But but in any case, um, the Pope has issued a couple of statements lamenting the persecution. And at one time he said. This reminds him of 1917 in Russia and 1935 in Nazi Germany. That's a step in the right direction. On the other hand, in his last statement, expressing, uh, drawing the world's attention to what's happening in Nicaragua, he said, well, this is why we, the church has to engage in dialogue with the authorities. And the authorities are talking, we're not in a situation of dialogue. When you're dealing with a totalitarian regime that is intent on crushing the Church of Christ, you need a different framework. And I think this frame that the idea that everything could be settled through dialogue, whether yeah. it's dealing with the CCP regime in China or the fate of the Catholic Church in Hong Kong or Nicaragua, it shows a secular utopianism. Uh, it doesn't mean that the church resorts to arms against these regimes, but it, it needs to know when dialogue is impossible. And for example, in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, the first wave of Ostpolitik with Cardinal Casaroli, there was a naivete about, and, and John Paul II pointed it out, you know, uh, the church needed uh, to bear witness for truth and for liberty and, uh, and, and, uh, What's strange is, you know, we had two great popes, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, Ratzinger Benedict, and Votiva John Paul II, who lived under totalitarian regimes and who showed great prudence, but also principle in dealing with them. And, you know, when, 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 uh, when uh, John Paul II went to Warsaw, the great sermon on June 1st, 1979, be not afraid, <laughs> yeah. you know? 
this was a different tone. It was not sort of giving in. Be not afraid. Yeah, absolutely. Be not afraid of that inimitable. Be not afraid. Launch yeah. into the deep waters. I was yeah. in Philadelphia as a seminarian when he said the same thing. Uh, yeah, you know, it, this is all deeply instructive of a kind of takeover. Uh, I hate to you sound like, you know, Taylor Marshall infiltration, but a kind of takeover of the church by this humanitarian mentality. And, and one of my points would be, of course, obviously, I studied liberation theology. I had a certain sympathy for it in the 90s. I traveled and lived in Latin America. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is, yeah, there was a great deal of truth in the fact that Christ asks us to side with the poor, preferential option for the poor. There's a great deal of truth in the need of the church to apply her social teaching to, to the real structures of injustice that are in the world and so forth. But the, the evil comes in when you reduce all of that to nothing but politics. And then you, you drag in secular humanitarian forms, or not even necessarily humanitarian, utopian forms of Marxist ideation, uh, class struggle, this sort of thing. Then you end up with an entirely different religion. It's a really, now, here's what's instructive. Here's my, my final point. Sure. When you look at Latin America today, the Catholic Church is hemorrhaging Catholics to the Pentecostal religions in particular. And what is it that Pentecostalism, other than simply a, a simplistic theology and no big rules like, you know, divorce and remarriage, what is it it offers to people that's attractive? An immediate experience of the supernatural. Now, I'm not saying that that kind of enthusiasm is necessarily a, a good form of religion. When I point out, those what people are craving is sup the supernatural provocation of Christ and the spirit and the charisms that come with that. What they are running away from is a dead church, a dead church of the message of horizontal latitudinarian do-goodism. That's what, that's what they're finding dull and boring, and they're walking away from it in the millions. Well, it was quite striking, uh, CWR, which we keep on referring to it, not only because you write for it, and I occasionally write for it because it's an unbelievably uh, good site, but they had a story, I think, from the Catholic News Agency about the brother of Leonardo de Boff, who was along with his brother. I can't remember. Is it Clovis? He's Clovis. The, yeah. He's a, he was also one of the founders of liberation theology in its Brazilian form. But he's written a book where he says liberation theology in the form you just described, it's really truly debased, politicized, Marxified form has played a major role in the decatholicization of Brazil. I remember reading that article. And he argues that people are craving the supernatural. And I mean, they're also praising that they don't want to just want to be told there's unjust structures there. They want to be told how to turn their own lives around, you know, stop drinking too much, stop beating your wife, working hard, taking responsibility for your children and community. So I think it's those two things together that has led to the Pentecostalist and charismatic renewal in Latin America. But uh, Boff said something that really stunned me. He said, look, he said, people will turn to anything about, uh, about this revolution of Christianity. And he mentioned Pentecostalism, various forms of evangelicalism, and even Satanism. I assume he means by that some of the African-tinged... Uh, yeah, Santeria and stuff Santeria like that. Kind, not uh, not to maybe the kind of brutal evocation of evil that uh, we associate with Satanism. But nonetheless, to have that kind of critical judgment be proffered by 
one of the principal theoreticians and theologians of liberation theology says an awful lot. And uh, that's why I think if you go back, um, you know, I have a, I treat uh, Ratzinger uh, at some length in my book. Uh, I'm especially impressed by his treatment of the three temptations of Christ uh, in volume one of Jesus of Nazareth, because, you know, he, ma he makes the claim, he makes the argument, uh, he not only draws on Soleviev. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. But he also says, look at Marxist regimes. When everything is materialist and everything is coercive and when the human spirit is forgotten, in the end, they can't even produce the food that's necessary to feed people. And it's interesting when you look at the crimes of communist regimes, the death tolls, which are very high, uh, the, the, the plurality or majority of those deaths come from peasants dying in famine. You yes. know, and um, so I think the Pope is making a, 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 a really important point about um, one of the great paradoxes of the human condition is when we put the material, when we put the low before an integrated account of the human person, body and soul, we end up not even doing justice to the material needs of human beings. And uh, you know, my chapter on Pope Francis in The Idol of Our Age, which I think is very measured, I think it would be less measured today because uh, the effectual truth, to use a term from Machiavelli of this papacy, has revealed itself rather more than it did in when I published my book in December 2018. But uh, I, I talk at a little length about the Pope's trip to Cuba in 2015. And it's true, when Benedict went to Cuba, he probably didn't, he, 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 he backtracked a little bit from the sort of more bold, prophetic present, presence of Pope uh, John Paul II when he had gone to Cuba in 1998. Uh, but uh, uh, um, John Paul II was an expert at dealing with totalitarian leaders and regimes and speaking to the people in a way that was not sort of openly revolutionary, but, but, made but. Very, but made very clear this abomination will pass, right? Uh, Benedict uh, was getting a lot of advice from, uh, you know, Vatican bureaucrats and others. And But Francis goes to Havana. The first thing he says, now this is right when a, a rather ill pa Castro had stepped back and Raul, his nasty brother, was uh, running the show. But he immediately uh, sent his greetings to his friend, Fidel Castro. Well, I don't think any Holy Roman pontiff should call a man who's exercised totalitarian control since January 1st, 1959, who essentially had uh, put the church under the jug. Remember the great compromise? And brutally murdered hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. And drove two million people out of the country. Uh, and, and, uh, and somehow present his relationship to that particularly execrable regime as one of friendship. And I have this little volume from our, our Sunday Visitor Press uh, from 2015 of uh, Pope Francis's trip to Cuba and America. And there, there were some good speeches in there, but in Cuba, you know, they have the, the 
they included the conversation in the airplane. I wish there were no conversations in the airplane with this pope. But yeah, uh, too. Uh, about Sylvia Pergioli, we all know her, the NPR reporter from mm. uh, from Rome, for a very distinctive voice. She says, Holy Father, um, uh, you had a three-hour meeting with Castro. You know, the church has suffered badly. You know, Christmas was outlawed for an awful long time, but... Uh, uh, you know, but the the church is, you know, the church hasn't spoken up in Cuba the way it has in some Latin American countries because it's it's under the jug. But uh, she says, well, did you raise this with Fidel? Did you say what? Why? Why this constant persecution of my co-religionists? And he and the Pope responded, No, 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 I didn't. I gave him some books about ecology. Fidel cares about the environment. You know. Whatever we're obliged to believe as Roman Catholics, whatever respect we're obliged to show the Holy Father, we are not obliged to believe that the demagogic economic policies proffered by the Peronists in Argentina are coextensive with Catholic social teaching, nor are we obliged to um, have a positive view of the Castro regime. And I find it very painful. I find it very painful. Paul VI may have remained silent about persecution in some East Euro Central European countries, but he knew what was going on. He lamented it, and he was making a prudential decision about how to aid the church. Well, and nor did he send letters to my friend Leonid Brezhnev. You know? Exactly. You know, and the thing is, it goes back to your not to interrupt your stream of thought, but I, I'm struck by the you know, you said you said earlier about uh, how not everything is solved by dialogue. And it does seem that this pope does believe that just about everything is, can't, you know, Rodney King, can't we all just get along? And there seems to be this sort of mentality of, well, if I could just sit down and have a beer with Fidel or have a beer with Xi Jinping, then, you know, then we'll get to know each other and all of these differences will just evaporate on a human way, level. And this is superficial, secular, therapeutic utopianism with a little admixture of, uh, I would say, a remnant of sort of liberationist sympathy for anyone who calls themselves Marxist. But it shows, you know, Paul VI liked to say the truth, ha the, the church has a specific expertise, and that expertise is man, humanity. And yeah. at its best, I think uh, Peggy said it, Pascal said it, the church knows the truth about man. This isn't the truth about man. This is hey my blog, Gaudium Space 22. Gaudium Space 22. Only in the light of Christ does the mystery of man make sense. Anyway, go ahead. Exactly. Exactly. And by the way, I mean that's a very powerful reason why I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. I I I firmly believe that the the gospel in its fullness makes sense of what who human beings are and the larger uh context of the human drama. But yeah. when when popes and theologians show such naivete, such, um, you know, uh, uh, they, they've, uh, this, this gooey sentimentality lacks the, 
you know, it lacks knowledge of man. It lacks an appreciation of the, you know, sometimes I think we need a little more Rhino Niebuhr, a little bit more, you know, Niebuhr used to say. I was going to bring up Niebuhr, you know, maybe we need a little bit more of that kind of thing, you know, because I was going to say before, too, you know, one of the reasons why people in Latin America, uh, although they, I guess they were somewhat appreciative of liberation theology, the fact of the matter is, is they have a powerful sense after centuries and centuries and centuries of, you know, what's the old talking head song, you know, same as it ever was, same as it ever was that, you know, as regimes change, that nothing ever really gets better. And that's because human sinfulness has a way of rising to the top anyway, that the, the, the rich and the powerful will always be in charge of things and the poor are always going to get the shaft. And it's great that the church is speaking up on our behalf, but really we want to know what happens to us when we die. We want to know if there's a way out of this mess that we're in right now in our own personal lives. How can I have better relationships? How can I love people better? How can I be a better human being in my relationship with God? How can I prepare for myself for eternity? I don't give a damn about the tax code and so on and so forth. Bring me Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the problem with this dialogue model. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It doesn't, it, you know, all this, the, I think we're pointing out a, 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 an irony and paradox here is on one hand, all this talk about being pastoral and meeting people where they are, this gooey, therapeutic, utopian sentimentality, hyper-politicized, excessively horizontal in its orientation, doesn't meet people where they are. No. It doesn't meet the, the, uh, the, American conservative political commentator Irving Kristol once said, uh, you know, he was a Jew who had sympathy for the Catholic Church because he thought it was the great and enduring, you know, uh, witness to truth in the Western tradition. He said, for God's sake, if the church stops trying to uh, catch up with the zeitgeist and if it, it, it pleaded for people to crawl on their hands and knees with hair shirts to Rome, many people would do it. You know, he, I mean, the image is probably exaggerated, but his point was... But he's right. He's right. That people really ultimately don't need to be told to take the easy path. Uh, they need to be told what is necessary to lead a full and serious life, individually and collectively. I would and, also... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. But about Niebuhr, I was just going to add, by reminding us uh, that... Uh, um, you know, I'm sort of torn. I'm very, very influenced by classical philosophy and by Thomas. But I think we need that Nemerian moment to, to remind us that even the virtuous, even those who try to live up to the high mindedness of authentic moral demands, you know, we're still broken. We're still fallen. Uh, we're still prone to egoism. And one of Niebuhr's great insights was the collective egoism was always more troubling. Uh, but in another way, uh, you're not going to wait with it. And we have to, uh, we need a certain realism in judging human affairs. Um, uh, without, yeah. that, without that, we really are in danger of succumbing to yeah. a sentimentality that has very little to do with real life or the real world. And if you want to meet people where they are, instead of appealing to that kind of sentimental goo, uh, and, and, and you need to appeal rather to, to, a, to a realism of the human condition. But part of the realism of the human condition is that even as we are enmeshed in our sins, 
And there is this collective ego. There's also deep down inside of all of us still a, a profound reservoir of goodness where we aspire to heroism. That's why we have heroes. We look up to them, uh, whether it's sports figures or whatever it is. We have heroes and we looked up and the ancient Greeks had their gods. That they look, The heroic, the heroic, the heroic. We see this, for example, for example, when a great natural disaster, let's say, hits an area, an earthquake, a tornado or something like that. People come out of the and it brings out the best and the worst in humanity. Right. Half of the half of the neighborhood goes and runs immediately and loots the J.C. Pennies. <laughs> the other half runs out and with bandages and fire like Toilet paper as they can. That's right. You know, exactly. <laughs> but the other half rushes out and says, what do I need to do? And they're dragging people out of burning cars and risking their own life to get people out of collapsed buildings and so on. There, there is this desire for whole, and what I'm what I'm saying is the church needs to be in the business of, of, of sanctifying people by calling them to her heroism, to calling them to, to do something great for the kingdom of God. You said earlier, Irving Crystal, you know, crawl on your knees to Rome and so on. And what that that's what prompted in my mind the thought, you know what? If the church raised the bar instead of lowering it and actually challenged Catholics to be heroic in this day and age, guess what? We would be. I think that's so well said, Larry. Uh, about heroism, uh, in chapter one of my book, I make the argument that and I draw on the great French Catholic poet and philosopher Charles Peggy, who lived yes. 1873 to 1914, and a very, very attractive and commanding figure for me. But Peggy said that the late modern world is the world that has no place for either heroes or saints. And you might say an older church was more sensitive to some of the tensions between the hero on the one hand, and the saint. But I think in light of this sort of dual assault on all forms of spiritual and moral, and I would add political greatness, we, we need to see that in some ways uh, to evoke heroism and to evoke sanctity is to defend the higher sphere, you know, what's highest yes. in man, what points above man, what what allows us to uh, exercise the virtues in a, a way that resists the easy way out. And, um, you know, I think in the first chapter of my book, I, I quote the Gospel of John, the famous remark of Christ, there are many rooms in the Father's house. And I say, look, think of Catholic, uh, the saints in the Catholic Church. They're, they're you know, today I think we have a tendency to emphasize service or even service to the poor, or the, the Beatitudes in terms of meeting people's material needs. And that's all to the good and part of, 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 of the Christian vocation. But St. Thomas Aquinas is also a saint with his tremendous dedication, not only to holiness, but to contemplative reflection about the that's good right. and the ends and purposes of the natural ends and purposes and supernatural destiny of human beings. But Joan of Arc is also a saint, you know, and there's a long Christian tradition of chivalry. So the church has been able historically to accommodate many forms of greatness, of sanctitude, of heroism. And there is a distinctive heroism uh, that Christianity contributes to the, the self-overcoming, you know, the, the ability. 
the oh, the willingness to do great things for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of our brothers, for the sake of truth and goodness. And um, when everything becomes the church meeting you and telling you that you're just fine, that with all your uh, your sins and all these things that have led you astray, that somehow that's just fine. You know, this field hospital image of the Pope, it has some purposes, but ultimately I think it gets the big picture wrong because the healing is not, you know, to ratify people in that they're hopeless sinners and can do nothing about it, or they're permanent victims or all that. All the glory of, of sanctitude and heroism gets... Yeah, it does. I mean, I said in my CWR article, I said, I, I talked about that field hospital analogy. I said, yeah, I, I kind of like that analogy. And nevertheless, a field hospital is still a hospital. It's meant to cure people. It's not a hospice where you just hold the hands of the dying. And worse than that, a field hospital is not a real hospital if basically the patient is told he's just a uh, uh, a self-loathing hypochondriac who's imbibed the ideology of his oppressor and then sends him off with a 15 second fake blessing. All right. That's that that's not a real hospital either. Now, Carl Olson recently had a piece at CWR talking about taking going to confession in a place he must have been traveling, a priest he wasn't familiar with. And uh, he said the priest spent the entire time trying to persuade him. Hey, that was my article. Oh, was that yours? Yeah. Was that yours, yeah, that oh. was yesterday. That's what I, that's what the article began with. Oh, I'm sorry for confusing you. And, and well, Carl. Carl and I are easily confused, uh, you know, yeah. even though I don't uh, have hair and he does. Well, but, well, <laughs> well uh, Larry, that was wonderful. I was reading along and my and assenting and thinking, this is going to be our future unless we have a restoration of sanity. We're increasingly going to have clarity. What what glory? I, in my book, I quote Max Scheler, you know, the great German phenomenologist and philosopher who uh, was a Catholic convert, but then left the church for I think because he couldn't control his personal life. But in any case, Shaler once said, repentance, not utopia, is the most revolutionary force in the world. And when you think about that, these, uh, these ideological utopias that don't understand the drama of good and evil in uh, human nature, who are politically naive, that uh, resort to totalitarian means of coercion, they, they don't show us at anything that's choice worthy. But the church, with her infinite wisdom and, and the, the appeal to repentance, that it's possible us to turn ourselves around and to take our orientation from the good, uh, to uh, partake of natural virtue, but to open up ourselves to the grace of God. That's right. You know, and, that, and this is not rigorism. No, no. And it's... Uh, by the way, it's 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 a message that has worked since the establishment of Christ Church. It's uh, it's literally liberating, and it's not utopian. It's uh, it's revolutionary to use Shaler's phrase, but it's not utopian. And so I keep on, you know, during the sex abuse scandal, I kept on thinking, why did Cardinal Law send? Uh, these priests who were doing these things to secular psychiatrists 
who did not have an adequate moral framework of conscience and moral responsibility, but you know, basically practice a non uh, a value-free therapeutic approach, and they'd tell them, oh, they're fine, they're fine, they've adjusted their feelings. You know, why did the church not trust her own wisdom? That's and right. I think we can ask this over and over again. And uh, But I do think part of the problem is, uh, as I said before, people in positions of real influence and responsibility don't really, not all of them, so no one understood the difference between uh, the humanitarian substitute for Christianity and Christianity better than Pope Benedict. You know, I think his speech at the beginning of the 2013, uh, was it 2000, the 2005 conclave, you know, where he, he took aim at the dictatorship of relativism. He was... Yeah. He, he knew exactly what the problem was. And in the interviews with Seawald, he says, <clears throat> he says explicitly in the last interview from 2018 that this humanitarian substitute for Christianity is the religion of the Antichrist, as Soleviev had. So he got it. But so many people don't. And, uh, and I'm, I'm afraid, and this is part of the hostile takeover of the church, that leading theologians and churchmen are increasingly acting in a punitive and aggressive way toward those who refuse to genuflect before this sentimentalized, utopianized, therapeutic, humanitarian substitute for Christianity. And that's a real problem. And it's a real problem for our church because if I, if I could be so bold, this wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> The hierarchical dimension of the faith, uh, of the structure of, of faith, of the moral life, of church authority, all things you alluded to before, that was supposed to prevent. Uh, no one ever thought that that structure could be kidnapped. And and again, I'm I'm, I'm not going down the martial. Yeah. This to me is not really uh, some conspiracy. It's a mindset. It's a, it, it's a mindset influential in certain currents of theology and philosophy. We know who the principal players are, but um, it's not a question of, you know, the, you know, certain yes. traditions. It was the Freemasons plotting. No, no, yeah, no. Exactly. And, and, and the, the important thing is this, that, that Pope Francis and, and his entourage and Fernandez, what they represent is the, the sort of, pinnacle moment in some ways of, of, of a progressive kind of theology that's been in the church and growing in the church now for a couple hundred years, actually. Yeah. You know, I'm accused by people like Michael Lofton and others, some of these Pope splainers of, oh, you grew up in, you know, in the 60s and 70s and the immediate post-conciliar era. And now you're just inflict you're, you're viewing the wounds that you suffered at that time as paradigmatic of everything that's going on now. And you're wrong to simply transfer the debates of the 70s into now. And, and I know claim that this is simply the 1975 all over again, but it is a continuation of a theological revolution that has been in the works now for a couple of centuries. The 1960s and 70s were simply one iteration, one eruption of that sort of progressive utopianistic co-optation of Christianity. And now this is just more of that. 
And Larry, if you can't would, see, I, the, go yeah, ahead. I would, I would add, Larry, that the uh, I, we can't we can't talk about this without talking the, about the '60s and all its manifestations: secular religion, the the heady utopianism, the uh, contempt. Roger Scruton, the English philosopher, talks about the culture of repudiation. It has a secular, it has a religious form, and it's this. It's all will be well if we simply repudiate that which has been handed on to us or reinterpret it in such a way that it's no longer what it is. And so I think that culture of repudiation, um, it often took the, 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 you know, it presented itself as a call for renewal and all that. But no, it, 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 that kind of approach can very quickly degenerate into a project of negation. And I think what we're seeing now, if you want to talk about its dialectical connection with the progressive Christian utopianism of the 60s, a lot of this is radicalized. The guys in the 60s, there were people on the outer edges, but a lot of them were not totally frank about what they wanted to do. We're That's seeing right. increasing frankness, aggressiveness, um, and, and really... I, you know, I went to a Jesuit uh, college, College of the Holy Cross, as an undergraduate, and uh, I used to hear talk, sometimes from my fellow students, like everything was wrong with the Catholic Church in 1967, but now it's renewed itself and all that. Well, this was a complete misconstrual of the Second Vatican Council. But I used to say to them, if the church had gone wrong for 1967, from, from Christ to 1967, well, I, it hardly seems to me a place where we ought to place our hopes, you know. But yeah. what, you know, when you have a, a essentially revolutionary attitude toward inherited truth, you're really saying the institution is not intrinsically good. The institution only becomes good once we've transformed it. And that, I think is simply incompatible with how Catholics understand Christ church. Yeah. Uh, um, Which is why what we're espousing is not some sort of white knuckled ascetical rigorism of the perfect. What, what it is, is a call for all of us to repent, all of us to get on the path of sanctification, but in a church where we have our eyes wide open to all of its warts, all of its failures, all of its failings, which includes all of us and an endless pool of forgiveness, mercy, and compassion as we're stumbling along the way, so long as that call to sanctification is still there, that we're all aware that that's the path that we are on, uh, and, and that we are not, in a sense, waiting for the church to be herself in some institutional sense now perfect so that I feel okay with associating myself with it. Uh, that's, that's not it at all. Not it at all. No, again, once the we're talking about the mercy and the call to mercy and the obligation to forgive always exists in a larger context of right. fidelity to God, our father, or friend, of fidelity to the moral law. Uh, there's a specific and legitimate place for secular punishment of crimes. And above all, for believer and unbeliever alike, we, we have an obligation to live up to the requirements of conscience, which is, of course, tied to repentance. And conscience, not as Newman famously said in the middle section of the letter to the Duke of Norfolk, 
It's not self-will. It's not autonomy. It's not feeling good about ourselves. It's listening to the voice of God and the moral law, the listening heart that uh, Pope Benedict liked to evoke. Of, uh, and uh, and uh, that, that mercy exists in that context. Uh, a unitary, yeah. uh, uh, connected context. Mercy, justice, repentance, conscience, rightly understood, and uh, the uh, the the um, it's stunning to me how there could be important currents of Catholic Christianity today who identify the Catholic faith with radical non-judgmentalism. Yeah, whatever that is. Well, and, and the predication of radical non-judgmentalism on that the idea is that you cannot have a radically non-judgmental church unless you have an antinomian church. That, that, right. the mere, that the mere presence of the namas, of the law, is what's irritating and annoying. Yeah, I, uh, I've, I use the uh, word antinomian a lot. I look back to some of the uh, oh, the counterculture in the 60s and some of the philosophical thinkers that informed it, Marcuse and others. And it was yeah. all about it was all about antinomianism. It was all about the illicit and essentially unjust character of law, secular law. I, uh, I say in the book and I say elsewhere that um, uh, one of the hallmarks of the of uh, uh, Christian utopianism or humanitarian Christianity is the uh, extinction or at least the weakening of the fundamental distinction between authority and authoritarianism. When everything, every institution and every truth claim that has a hold on us that is truly authoritative is denounced as authoritarian, we've again left the old wisdom behind. And um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, and I'm also reminded of the uh, the analysis of modernity from the late Italian philosopher Augusto del Noce, who you mentioned earlier, Roger Scruton, talking about the culture of repudiation. Del Noce had a very similar analysis of modernity. Uh, he says the, 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 the main dogma of modernity can be summed up in the phrase, quote, today, it is no longer possible to believe. XYZ. In other words, this this constant, this constant inferral that that it's it's he calls it the 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 history of philosophy that he calls it the periodization theory that philosophy proceeds in periods of of maturation. So there was the you know it's very Feuerbachian. You know, there's this infantile stage, then you go to the childhood stage and the adolescent stage. Well, obviously, then modernity represents the adult phase of human consciousness in the scientific mind in particular, in the positivistic Auguste Comte sort of religion of humanity sense of things. We have arrived. The history has a point By and way, it's us. Comte, uh, Comte's three stages of history. There was the, uh, the yeah. theological, the, science, uh, the philo philosophical, philosophical, and then the positive phase, which was pure science. So, and, yeah. and, and, and this, but it was uh, for him a, a benevolent form of atheism. Of course, part of Comte's incredible naivete is the belief that uh, uh, atheism would be benevolent. You know, uh, yeah. Uh, Nietzsche saw through that. 
Yeah, Ma Machiavelli could not imagine anything <clears throat> worse than Chapter 21 of The Prince, pious cruelty, crimes, fanaticism in the name of religion. What he failed to see was how much worse impious cruelty is or politicized atheism. I must say, Del I've read quite a bit of uh, Del Noce of late, and uh, I didn't include him in my book only because I turned to reading him. Uh, really, the books have only become readily available. Oh, yeah. Thanks to Carlo Lancelotti. They've just recently been translated. Yeah, he's done a wonder. He's a mathematician. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And he's a good guy. I met him a couple of times. But uh, no, Del Noce has a he, he really sees, I think you were getting at this, atheism as the end point of the modern project. And it's a yeah. difference between uh, Taylor, Charles Taylor, who is a Catholic, a bit of a progressive in his politics, but I think a serious Catholic. In the secular age, despite uh, the stranglehold that the imminent frame and the buffered self have on us, Taylor defended the the possibility of faith and he gives examples yes you know, of, of of a faith that is so genuinely self-conscious about the obstacles to a public affirmation of faith today but um but i think del is right that for many respectable people um they want to declare the very uh you know what 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 has defined humanity from the beginning the drama the, the great drama of humanity uh has yeah. been um you know the search for truth and meaning and purpose and uh the the creative logos which is you know essential part of our reasoning and uh and to say that that's no longer licit or no longer possible i think it's an essentially totalitarian move it, it is it says you cannot ask those questions. You cannot pursue those true claims. You are not a modern man if you remain open to the things of the spirit. It said uh, Donoce defines totalitarianism precisely as the sublimation of culture to politics. And that once that happens, everything comes under political control. As you just, you may not say this, you may not do that. But before yeah, we move off, don't. He's very good on the, the nexus of. Uh, Oh, yeah. But there's something else I find interesting about Donoce, and then we can move on. It is this, that even though he he rejects the progressive narrative of stages and now we're, we're in the adult phase. And, and so he, he rejects the inevitability of the march of human enlightenment to modern atheism. But he also rejects the narrative of declension that essentially philosophy reaches a certain high point, say, maybe in Aquinas and then simply yeah. has been a steady decline since he, he talks, for example, about some of the positive aspects of Descartes and the modern trajectory, which he sees then coming to fruition in people like Rosmini and, and, and some of these others. He doesn't he, necessarily. He Malbranche, too. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not certain I completely agree with everything that Donoche says, but there's there's a good caveat in there that both the, the, the narrative of inevitable ascent and then the, the narrative of traditionalist declension from some sort of, say, 13th century high point, these are both kind of flawed narratives. Yeah, I think what we need to do, and this can be done within the framework of traditional classical and Christian wisdom, but renewed by an encounter with the modern world and the best modern thought, which is always important, 
Um, my friend Pierre Manon likes to say uh, we need we need to recover a confidence in moral agency. We need to recover confidence in free will. Hang on one second. Hang on. Keep talking. I'm yeah. listening. Yeah, we need to restore confidence in the belief that we're not playthings of history or of some underlying sociological or economic determinism or psychological determinism. And yeah, I th- the illusion I, of our oh, time. the illusion of our times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pierre yeah. Manin. Yeah. I just got this. I haven't read it, but I just yeah, got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll tell you two things. That's one of his that uh, recovering this idea that we're all victims. Uh, Rene Girard talks about this anti-Christian cult of victimization today, which is yeah. used historically. We've got to restore the idea that however wounded we might be by sin, we nonetheless, we're not, we're not believers in total depravity like the Reformation thinkers. We believe in the, the efficacy of free will. We believe in uh, uh, that human beings are responsible for their behavior, that moral choice, virtue and vice are meaningful things available to acting man. So I think um, one way to avoid those two narratives of preordained progress and inevitable decline is to realize the human element that under the grace and providence of God, men with free will can act. We can act within the church, I think, as you and I are trying to do. Yeah. With great respect. We uh, we can act within the polity. We can act within civil society and, and the v- various ways we connect with uh, our fellow believers and fellow citizens and human beings. So a renewed confidence that we're not playthings of inexorable forces. Um, uh, I think that's part of the path forward, you know, and uh, all of the, yes. you, know, you mentioned the sixties and the sixties, instead of get, learning traditional wisdom, and it's true, some of it had become static and petrified and stale manuals, scholasticism, we would all admit that. But instead of renewing, you know, the ressourcement, uh, not just the ressourcement, you know, people like Lubach, but the a kind of ressourcement within Thomism. Oh, hell yeah. Of, Instead of turning that way, uh, we uh, a seminary education was increasingly a genuflection before various forms of, I would say, uh, uh, you know, fashionable determinisms, you know, and uh, and so the gospel of freedom gets lost when it, uh, you know, we we simply say human beings as victims of unjust social structures or of. Uh, of uh, psychological mechanisms or sexual urges, you know, we we cease to have human persons, and in their place, we have oh. uh, we we basically have a sociology of of human society. So, yeah, I'll tell you one essay I can point you to in the reader. Since I I Manat wrote the forward to my book, I should mention um, Pierre Manat. Yeah, oh, yeah, he has a beautiful essay in uh, the Illusion of Our Times. By the way, I'll stop there real quick. For those who are just listening, we're talking about a book called The Religion of Humanity, The Illusion of Our Times by Pierre Manent, M-A-N-E-N-T. Okay, edited and translated by Paul. Catholic political philosopher who most recently has published uh, a best-selling book on France on Pascal and the Christian. Yeah, I always have to remember that I have podcast listeners and not just YouTube viewers, so I can't just hold a book up to the screen. Gotcha. 
You you were you were about to say. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now, he has an essay uh, which I find very important and very enlightening and illuminating um, on Pope Francis's treatment of the uh, of the um, parable of the Good Samaritan in Fratelli Tutti, his uh, a strange yeah. encyclical. 65% of the references in Fratelli Tutti are to Francis's own writings or to uh, declarations he had uh, proposed along with the grand imam of Abu Dhabi. So it's a very unusual yeah. for popes to be so utterly self-referential. In any case, Manand argues that uh, Francis excessively imitinizes the uh, parable. Um, he he doesn't take seriously what the church fathers took seriously, the possibility that the uh, Samaritan was Christ himself in some allegorical sense, that here is this man, very authoritative, and he doesn't stick around. He gives the innkeeper a task. He provides him with generous means and all of that. And, you know, the the, uh, the 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 priest who passes by the 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 man who's been robbed he's not simply an uncaring man he's he's uh, commanded by the law you know the laws of blood and all of that you know so he says reading this as a secular tale of bourgeois indifference to the suffering of the poor there's something to that but there's a deeper theological resonance. Uh, to the parable of the Good Samaritan that gets lost in that kind of rendering of the parable. And Manon's point is, it reinforces the idea that we can do this all on our own. That yeah. what we need is to understand, to have the strength to, you might say, to imbibe the deep spiritual insight of the parable is to open ourselves up to Christ who gives us the strength course free, as i said a moment ago free will is indispensable we have to make that choice but part of it is understanding precisely what we can't do just by ourselves so i thought it was very interesting it's very respectful but he just says this is a reading of uh you know pope benedict used to say uh, we don't need the communist manifesto we have our own manifesto the parable of the severity but understood in a way that's open to the light of transcendence and to the presence of christ in that parable itself and um i think um yeah and earlier in our discussion i i thought of um i can't remember the name of the encyclical but it came out in 1983 or 1984 uh, you may remember, Larry, where Pope John Paul II said the sin of the modern world is the forgetting of sin. You know, I, I, yeah, that's part of the story, too. But anyway, I think Manant is uh, he, he makes the point. It's not just, um, well, uh, we have different motives for doing moral things or helping the yeah. needy or the wounded than the humanitarians. It's just not, not that. It's a different morality, and it can lead to... Humanitarianism can actually lead to terrible misdeeds like abortion and euthanasia out of pity, out of uh, right. concern. 
I feel sorry for these people. We don't want more poor people in poor neighborhoods with crime and drugs. You know, these these old people will suffer if we let them live a few years longer. Uh, what good is it to allow a child with Down syndrome to enter the world? There's there, uh, as Fanny O'Connor once observed, you know, tenderness, tenderness can lead to the gas chambers. It can lead to, um, yeah. in the name, um, yeah, to come back to our earlier discussion, uh, uh, caritas is not softness. It's, That's right. it's tougher than that and more demanding than that. Very demanding. And only eros degenerates ultimately into sentimentalism. In Benedict's encyclical uh, Deus Caritas Est, he talks about how eros cannot even remain. So we're kind of coming full circle back to the Fernandez thing. You know, eros cannot even remain itself as true eros and loses itself unless it fulfills itself in agape, which is a much more hard-nosed, tough love approach to things you know it's just why if the be all and end all of your existence is sexual intercourse eventually you're not going to really enjoy even sexual intercourse you lose even that if your be all and end all is to simply eat everything that's wonderful to eat you're eventually going to lose the appetite even for eating all of that has to be fulfilled in some kind of a higher register taken up that's going to require some level of of, of an ascesis of an ascetical discipline of the self to keep moving forward into higher and higher avenues. And, and unfortunately, the horizontalist utopianism in which we sort of short circuits that entire process. Yeah, you know, uh, the progressive theologians and philosophers are always denouncing rigorism. Uh, that's the wrong word. Uh, Plato talked about order in the soul. Uh, yes. and the, the desiring parts of the soul uh, are capable of great and good things when they are ordered to higher purposes. And um, um, so um, I don't think the kind of anthropology we're defending has anything to do with asking everyone to go out to the desert and be. No. We're, we're telling, we're inviting people to think about the possibility that true happiness and blessedness might lie in a less self-indulgent understanding of what human freedom is. And that self-indulgence, what I call the collective of concupiscence, a culture based on self-indulgence, is ultimately really boring and uninteresting and doesn't inspire. Uh, really that boring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That people only become, you know, basically we all have the same basic concupiscental libidinous desires, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Food, sex, whatever, power, greed, fame, all of these sorts of base level human desires. They're all the same. And they sort of manifest themselves in both individual lives and historically in exactly the same way over and over and over again. It's the great leveler. It's the great homogenizer. We only become interesting when we rise above that and develop our own idiosyncratic missional sort of vocation in life to develop our talents, to move up higher, to do interesting things. And so I often like to say, is there anything more dreadfully boring than listening to somebody drone on and on and on about their sexuality? I oh. don't give it. I don't give a damn about oh. I don't even I don't even give a damn about my own sexuality, let alone your sexuality. All right. Yeah. So just okay. shut up. An older Britain used to talk about privacy, the importance of privacy. And, yes. Uh, and uh you know the the sexual realm. Yeah, but we're not we're not uh, prudes who think we should print, pretend sexuality doesn't exist. But on the other hand, 
to, you know, I, I think to come back, you know, the, the three levels of humanity that uh, Pascal talks about in his pensées and the lowest is concupiscence, but he doesn't deny that this is a central part of human life and he doesn't moralize about it terribly, but he does say, you know, to reduce human beings to, to the concupiscent, um, to forget the angel and the beast, you know, is really to take away the fullness of our humanity. And it's, yeah. you know, uh, the classics use image like, you know, man is the in-between being, I think Plato, the metaxi, the in-between, you know, we're between gods and beasts. Well, you know, if we want to uh, reduce ourselves to the level of the beast, we are hardly giving individuals and political communities uh, an, uh, an opportunity to flourish. And... Um, I think this is a very liberating message. I think it's a message that speaks to ordinary people. It doesn't demand theological or philosophical sophistication. It's uh, it's the age-old wisdom of the human race. And I, mean, I must say, uh, I think Regis Martin, you know, he's a conservative Catholic. Oh, yeah. Franciscan. He had a piece of crisis a week or two ago, and he said, I'm really worried because the... Uh, he said, for 2,000 years, for all its travails, the Catholic Church was um, the great uh, corporate embodiment of sanity. Remember Chesterton's book, The Outline of Sanity? Oh, yeah. And uh, and he says, now we have to say, well, is it is it, of course, in her, her deeper self-understanding, she remains an outpost of san sanity, but... Uh, an outpost that has been corrupted by ideological modes of thinking that, well, there's a struggle going on in the church and we do, I, I, I have enough confidence and I hope it's not utopian that the fullness of truth, it's weightiness, the fact that it, it understands reality, that ideologies are always distortions and substitutes for reality. I have enough hope that um, the, the 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 you know the 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 church <clears throat> sanity will drive out the ideological currents. But you know this crisis may be right up there historically with the Arian controversy of the fourth century. I think it is. I think it is. And Regis Martin, actually, in that crisis article which I read, called for the Pope to resign. That he should resign. Uh, and I get his point. I, I, and, and I'm not obviously a big fan of Pope Francis, but I, I, I wouldn't want him to resign for the simple reason that the last dude resigned. And, and you know what? If, if we're going to get a steady stream of resigning popes, uh, then that might become the norm. And then there's going to be a pressure on future popes as soon as their papacy hits some rough bumps or they get a certain age. The pressure is going to be brought to bear like, hey, why don't you just retire already? Well, I'm, you know, yeah. I would say there are certainly, uh, uh, you know, this Pope likes to say, stop bringing ideologies into it, but he's brought ideology. Into oh, geez. It. And more people, so than any other Pope ever. Pope. And, and when, when good men of the church, the Cardinal Mullers, the Cardinal Sarahs and others speak the truth and defend uh, the bark of Peter authentically. So, uh, you can't be accusing them of, of in, importing ideolo uh, ideologies. Uh, and that said, I, I do think this is 
hepatitis C is increasingly calamitous and may end yeah. in calamity. But I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, if we force popes to resign or encourage them to resign, we risk further politicizing and ideologizing the church. Because then, the, you're right, with a crisis, the pressure builds, let's get this one to resign. And then I think something gets terribly lost. And that is somehow, one thing I worry about Francis is that his departure from good sense and sanity, his confusions about our religion, the religion of humanity, um, served to undermine the authority of Peter. Yeah, it does. And that's that's what I worry. I think the authority of Peter is all important, but I think these Pope splainers are not helping because not at they're, all. they're denying the obvious. And you know, to be a Catholic does not mean to be blind to what's right in front of you, for God's sake. Yeah, and they have to also engage in, and you alluded to it earlier with, uh, you know, basically the, the oracle of the moment now it becomes truth. They have to engage in a fundamental rejection of the insights of the Second Vatican Council that placed the authority of the Pope under under the scriptures, under the tradition, in the sense that he was a servant of that, and that he was part of the College of Bishops, although, you know, the, the head of the College of Bishops, and every and the College of Bishops are, you know, sub petro et cum pet, you know, under and with Peter. The fact of the matter is, everything in the Vatican Council, the trajectory was in the direction of a collegiality, and this Pope talks about synodality all the time, too. All right, and so the Pope splainers are out there concocting now an image of the papacy that's ruled by ruled by sort of charism alone, that the, 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 whoever the Pope is at the moment, he's getting some sort of oracular revelations from God every single morning when he wakes up. And so whatever he says that day is now truth. This is certainly not Catholic doctrine. That that's, the, raw, that's the irony of the Pope's plainers. That's the raw superstition that makes Catholicism look silly. Newman in the letter to the Duke uh, of Norfolk says, when he defends papal power, he defends it in the context of the guardian of conscience rightly understood. Yes. Permanent truths revealed by conscience and scripture and tradition and the self-revelation of Christ. The idea that the private judgment or the ideological proclivities of a particular man can take precedence over that inheritance is as un-Catholic as one could imagine. And when Fernandez, who, who has to go, I don't know, I'm with you on the Pope, I don't want him to resign, but Fernandez has to go. Fern yeah. when, when Fernandez says, I'm here to defend the personal magisterium of the Pope, as, as he's done on more than one or two occasions, we're, we're, we're treading very dangerous ground, very dangerous waters, because... That um, that is not. There is no no pope has a personal magisterium. No one ever has. Maybe they have a personal charism or particular emphases or this, but never their own magisterium. Do you remember? Yeah, uh, there was about seven years ago now. Massimo Fagioli, one of the great papal defenders, came. He, he tweeted there was when it was still Twitter. He tweeted that. Uh, one of the things that was great about Pope Francis was we finally now had a pope that was his own person 
who no longer felt bound by scripture and tradition, but now basically we had, a, we had in a sense, a church that is now being governed by a person and his own personal charism, not someone bound to scripture and tradition. Now, he immediately caught heck for that, and the tweet was Im- deleted, but there were screenshots of it, of course, that were, there were all over the place. But th- that was perfectly expressive of what you're talking about here. Well, by the way, uh, and, and no, Pope Francis is not the Antichrist for you crazies out there. But uh, in Shalevyev's short tale of the Antichrist, the Antichrist is exactly and precisely, and he becomes Pope, a Pope who invents it all over again, who divorces himself from authentic Christian wisdom and in the name of modernizing or ideologizing the faith, breaks the continuity of Christian authority, truth, and wisdom. So, uh, look, I don't think Massimo Fagioli thinks um, he was destroying the Catholic Church, but in effect, that was an invitation to destroy the continuity of our faith going back to our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember that tweet? Do you remember that? I do. I do. I, uh, I'll tell you, the, the former Archbishop of uh, of uh, Philadelphia is a very good man, Chapu. He, Chapu. He went to one of his events, and he said, um, I don't want to be really big, but he said, you know, Fajoli was actually trying to spy on everything they de- did because... Uh, he was was actively sowing conflict between the best American bishops and the Holy See, you know, and uh, and uh, you know I think he's a lightweight. I think he's a bad yeah. theologian. I think he is a publicity hound, and um, and I hope in a restored church and a restored papacy. Uh, we will pay very little attention to the musings of a man like Massimo Fagioli. Um, I agree. And I, I want to add uh, the fact that Archbishop Chapu, who I just mentioned, or I could mention, I have a dozen other great and good uh, archbishops in the United States and major Episcopal sees who have not been named cardinals, but uh, the people who have, who have very questionable fidelity to oh. us, Sacred tradition and the moral law. It's a scandal. It's one of the Cardinal great- McElroy. I mean, Cardinal McElroy, the, the red dye on his hat wasn't even dry. And he was already publishing in America magazine his essay of saying the church is wrong on LGBTQ stuff and we need to change our teachings. And yet he doesn't he doesn't get slapped down. Cardinal Holerick, who came around and flat out said the homosexual teaching of the church is flat out wrong and it needs to change. The Pope makes him the relator general of the Synod on Synodality. Cardinal Burke gets Cardinal Burke gets his apartment taken away from him. Yeah, he's a mean man. <clears throat> and I say to the Pope's plainers, you cut the crap about his pastoral style and his charity and all that. He's as mean and autocratic as any figure who is filled uh who who has yes uh, filled the Sea of Peter. And that kind of thing is embarrassing. And uh, Cardinal Burke is an utterly faithful Catholic. And by the way, he's always showed respect to the Holy Father. Yes, he has. The Holy Father responds like a petulant autocrat. That's right. And I'm no fan of Cardinal Burke's preference for all of the epicene frills of 
long, you know, copes and all that. I'm not into any of that stuff. And he is. So I've been kind of critical of that aspect of him. But I tell you, what, he is a good, good man. He is like yeah. anybody that knows him will tell you he's a holy. My wife has met him. You know, yeah. he's, he's utterly gracious, kind, gentle, holy man. I've uh, seen speak, have not met him tete a tete, but my sense is he's a good and holy and deeply thoughtful man. And yeah, I'm with you on the, you know, the, the, the red, this and that, and the, and the Episcopal, this and that. But on the other hand, um, uh, the, there's an argument that those are symbols of the office. If it was some kind of right. merely personal predilection, it would be. Yeah, Pope Benedict liked all that stuff too, the red <laughs> shoes and the fancy vestments. And and... I think it was because it were, these were a public visible signs of the church and the witness and authority of the church. By the way, if you haven't got it in the mail, uh, unfortunately, I've got to go to meetings. We're going to cut this off. I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I got to go too. Yeah, yeah. I just got in the mail from Ignatius Press um, a new book by Cardinal Sarah on uh, Pope Benedict. It's two thirds uh, a kind of biographical, autobiographical account. Uh, a very lovely, very thoughtful. And the last third are selected sermons, mainly sermons and addresses by Benedict that Cardinal Sarah thinks get to the heart of his liturgy. Oh, excellent. I'll have to, I'll have to order that. But it's uh it's a compact volume. It's very, very nice. It's beautifully translated. And it's a reminder. Uh, you know, Cardinal Sarah says, you know, he thinks the uh, Benedict is the great contemporary uh, doctor of the church. And that that's certainly my view. One can hope that someday Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, will be made a doctor of the church. And maybe we'll end with that. Thank you. So, maybe we'll have a part three. Maybe you'll become a regular on the show well, here, Dan. I, 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 we have good discussions. And these are, as I said before, these are matters of the utmost and ongoing importance. So it's. Yeah. Well, it's, thanks. It's, so, thanks, Dan, for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been a very long podcast, but I think a very fruitful. But thank you, Dan, for coming on. Thank you, Larry.